Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. From Minneapolis to the Washington, D.C. area, where a lesser-known police killing of a black man occurred this month, communities are demanding an end to police terror. When someone is killed, murdered, and executed by the state, by the police, we have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. And whether COVID-19 or no COVID-19, we're going to come together and stand up and protest and say that this is wrong. And as we cope with a myriad of crises and an economic system failing to meet human needs, how do we laugh to keep from crying? We speak to that angry, funny comedian, Lee Camp. Why is it all the white supremacists are like the physical worst representation of a master race you could ever imagine? It's like Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and they're just pieces of flesh hanging off. They're like, like, we're the master race. You're like, dude, there's something growing out of your neck folds. We're the superior genetics. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. On the Ground listeners know that when it comes to what is happening in Washington, we are in a war for information and truth. But this week, that war was ratcheted up to a whole new level. On Capitol Hill, Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi was accused by privacy advocates of trying to reauthorize the controversial FISA and Patriot Act surveillance laws without bipartisan amendments protecting journalists and religious groups. At the White House, the Trump administration set precedent in announcing that they would not publish the mid-year economic forecast. The administration says the economy is too volatile to issue a report, but critics say that Trump is just avoiding publishing bad news that would likely be contained in the forecast, with the nation passing 100,000 coronavirus deaths this week more than 40 million thrown out of work since mid-March, and the economy in freefall, Trump's past predictions of a V-shaped recovery and a transition to greatness sound more like campaign sloganeering, not statements backed up by facts. But while Trump and crew maybe can't handle the truth, activists on the ground are recognizing the perils and promise of this COVID era. Organizers working with impacted communities held an information session this week that Chantel James covered and then filed this report. Wednesday night, Alliance for Justice hosted a panel to address the disproportionate impact of the COVID-19 crisis on low-income communities and communities of color. With holding court, a justice conversation, panelists examined COVID-19 through a racial and economic justice lens. Moderator Ludovic Blaine, director at the California Donor Table, facilitated a conversation between Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Chains, and Ai-Jin Poo, co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. They talked about both the existing inequalities the crisis has made clear, as well as the ways it threatens to deepen those divides. Rashad Robinson tells us that COVID-19 is a critical turning point that must be seized so that past gains in racial and economic justice can be carried forward. I think it's a mistake to think that this pandemic is merely showing us what's been going on for a long time in terms of race in this country. It's definitely doing that. 
But every day that is illuminated. The police in Minneapolis who just murdered a black man um, reveals that. Walmart cheating and stealing from its workers reveals that. Hospitals and doctors who repeatedly neglect black mothers do that. You know, Facebook was just <laughs> revealing that in all the ways its policies and practices continue to allow Trump to go onto their platform and lie. This pandemic is not just revealing what it means to live under a regime of structural racism. It's actually making things worse. And we have to understand that because the quickest way to lose all the things that you gained is to believing that you actually can't lose them. Part of any inflection point means in so many ways that we can either make things uh, better or we can make things a lot worse. Um, there is really no sort of middle ground um, in inflection points. Um, and if we do not turn this around, we could see a generational blow to racial justice, to what we've been fighting for all this time. And, and so as I think about sort of uh, what's happening in this moment, I think a lot about the founding of Color of Change, uh, which was Hurricane Katrina, which was a flood that was caused by bad decision makers that turned into a life-altering disaster by bad decision makers. And like Katrina, COVID is not just a virus, but a virus of bad decisions that preceded and a virus of bad decisions that had followed. And for me, and for us at Color of Change, we fundamentally believe that in these inflection points, in these moments, whether they be Katrina or COVID, which is making Katrinas all around our country, the opportunities to build something new is clear. The opportunities to go back are not realistic. The panel opened into a Q&A where participants from across the country could have their concerns addressed by the panelists. To stay current on upcoming events from Alliance for Justice, follow them on social media. From North ECC, this is Chantal James. Well, it seems that human needs and distress are at the heart of two cases of police killing black men. In Minneapolis, which is erupting following the choking death of George Floyd by police officer Derek Chauvin, a police precinct was set on fire Thursday. Protesters are calling for Chauvin and the three other officers who stood by at the scene to be arrested and charged with murder. More information circulated this week tying Chauvin to past complaints of police abuse and brutality. Here in neighboring Silver Spring, Maryland, activists are demanding justice in the police shooting death of Finan Burhe. On the afternoon of May 7th, Montgomery Police Sergeant David Cohen fatally shot 30-year-old Eritrean immigrant Finan Hale Burhe in the parking lot of Burhe's apartment complex in the White Oats section of the city. Body cam footage released the day after the incident shows Cohen in a squad car putting on a protective mask before exiting and encountering Burhe who is described by activists as in an emotional state of distress and carrying a knife. Cohen quickly draws and aims his gun at Burhe while shouting, put the knife down. Within a minute, he fires five shots at Burhe, who was later taken to a hospital and died from his wounds. 
It is unclear if it's standard police protocol to use deadly force in such an instance or to use non-lethal force when a suspect is not armed with a gun. Cohen was placed on paid administrative leave and the Montgomery County Police Department said the incident is under investigation by the Major Crimes Division. Montgomery County Police Department has a history of recent questionable behavior toward black people. Last year, body cam footage of another incident recorded police using the N-word at a group of young people. In 2018, Robert Lawrence White, a 41-year-old unarmed black man, was fatally shot in Silver Spring. At a protest and vigil held Sunday, May 24th, a wide array of speakers voiced frustration, sorrow, and anger at the killing of Burhey and at the long delay in Montgomery County in implementing police reforms for de-escalation and handling of cases involving possible mental distress. Laura Ho, a spokesperson for the Silver Spring Justice Coalition, voiced a, a list of demands calling for immediate action by officials. We demand that Sergeant Cohen... The killer cop be fired immediately. We demand that 3rd District Commander Frank and Montgomery County Police Chief Marcus Jones resign immediately. They have failed. They have failed in oversight of their commands. They have failed to ensure residents in distress do not die because of police incompetence. They have failed to implement de-escalation recommended by the International Association of the Chief of Police. They are responsible for Finan's death and they must be held accountable. Because of the recent instances of police terror here and around the country, on the ground asked anthropologist, artist, and author Sabia Prince about the link in this era of COVID-19 between Floyd being killed by police in Minneapolis after allegedly using a counterfeit bill or forged check to buy food and Burhey being shot to death in Silver Spring, Maryland, while he appeared to need mental health intervention. Now, I think your question is just so important to bring this down to a human issue and really contextualizing that with the historical reality that African Americans have all too frequently been dehumanized and not being looked at as the vulnerable human beings that they are, right? So in this moment when we should all be uniting and coming together and being concerned for each other's welfare, we are instead, you know, going into our categories, which is going to be uh, disadvantageous for us, you know, because this racial hierarchy has never benefited us as black people. So, you know, you see all these different categories of vulnerability that are emerging as you've laid out so cogently our vulnerability to police violence, our vulnerability to bad health outcomes, our vulnerability to environmental racism, and, you know, the fact that all this legislation that's being passed is not helping working folks, African-American entrepreneurs, you know, black working class and brown working class people. So we are just in such a state but I will say that I am encouraged by the organizing. You know, I see the organizing 
I see the mutual aid. I see Black Lives Matter. I see people that are just sick and tired of being sick and tired and not taking it anymore. So that's the one thing I can be encouraged by. But, you know, this is an intersectional problem that we as a people have confronted for quite a long time. So, you know, here we are, you know, in 2020 with this sort of new combination of factors that is just so horrific for us as a people, including the police acting out. Sabia Prince is author of three books, including African Americans and Gentrification in Washington, D.C., Race, Class, and Social Justice in the Nation's Capital. Now, policing is actually one battleground in D.C.'s June 2nd primary election. Former Assistant Attorney General Janice Lewis-George is mounting a strong challenge to Ward 4 Councilman Brandon Todd, who is endorsed by the police union, government, and conservative backers like the Washington Post. On the other hand, Lewis George has the backing of a broad range of frontline worker and progressive groups, including the Washington Teachers Union, healthcare workers, transit workers, Black Lives Matter, the Sierra Club, and Our Revolution D.C. She also has been critical of over-policing, mass incarceration, and has committed to redirecting more of the city's budget from the police into human needs. Two varying perspectives are making for sparks on neighborhood listservs. Lewis George also criticizes Todd's vote to overturn Initiative 77, approved by D.C. voters to raise the wages of restaurant workers, and she criticizes his vote against universal paid family leave. Meanwhile, Our Revolution D.C. is sending out email and reminding progressives that Bernie Sanders is still on the June 2nd ballot in D.C. to collect more delegates and influence at the upcoming Democratic Convention. The deadline to request a mail-in ballot for D.C.'s June 2nd election has been passed, but early voting is available at select sites throughout the district, and you can still register to vote and vote on the same day that you show up at these sites And that's up to and on Tuesday, June 2nd. More information is online at dcboe.org. That's for the D.C. Board of Elections, dcboe.org, or call 202-741-5283. That's 202-741-5283. And finally, in culture and media, the New York Times reported late Wednesday that a draft of a new Trump executive order would make it easier for federal regulators to argue that Facebook, Google, YouTube, and Twitter are suppressing free speech when they move to suspend users or delete posts. Critics warned that the draft order, which was created after Twitter fact-checked Trump's tweets this week, may be unconstitutional. A comedic look at Trump's Space Force is premiering tonight, May 29th on Netflix. But the comedy may, of course, downplay how the real-life Space Force is costing billions of dollars at a time when the basic needs of many Americans are not being met. In May in history, on May 20th, 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act, opening millions of acres of government-owned land in the West to so-called free-soil or non-slave homesteader settlements. Ultimately, some 160 million acres, nearly 10% of the total U.S. area, was given away to 1.6 million homesteaders, mostly west of the Mississippi. 
Though most of all of the plots were given to whites in the first three years after the act's passage, an 1866 law explicitly included African Americans, but was undermined by severe discrimination, bureaucratic inertia, and underfunding. Though it did help some Southern black farmers to acquire their own land and help the formerly enslaved leave the terror of the Jim Crow South and move west. And finally, looking at housing today, DC activists are among those participating in the second Council the Rents, Council the Mortgages, Make the Banks Pay caravan and protest, which is happening May 30th in more than 70 cities. Organizers say they are adding to their demands for this protest justice for George Floyd and the arrests and charges against his murderers on the Minneapolis Police Department. In D.C., protesters are meeting at 12 noon at the Carter Barron parking lot, 4850 Colorado Avenue Northwest. And more information about all the rallies in all the cities can be found at canceltherents.org, canceltherents.org. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
Good afternoon. I'm Janelle Wilkins. I represent this district, District 20. And I want to first of all give my condolences to the families, to the mothers especially. I'm a black immigrant as well from Kingston, Jamaica. And I know what it is for my mother to come here with the promise of America, for greater opportunity, for freedom, and wanting better for her children. And so the pain that I hear from Emmanuel's mother, from all of the mothers in this community where the police have consistently killed black men, it breaks my heart. I'm here because I have a question that's on my heart right now. And that question is, when black men are in distress, is death the penalty? It is. Is death the penalty? Yes. Recently, I was I was watching TV, and I think I was watching MSNBC, and I saw at the state capitol in Michigan, I saw mobs of white men who took over the capitol, who were yelling in the face of the police. They were armed with AR-15s and all kinds of guns in the face of the police. And I saw them being met with kindness and understanding, not an ounce of violence. I think about Dylan Root, who went into a church and executed members of a church in South Carolina, who was escorted out alive. Taken to Burger King. And then taken to Burger King. And then I think about right here in our community, where just a few years ago we had a black man, Robert White, with the crime of walking in his neighborhood, who was racially profiled and killed. I think about Fanon, who we are here standing up for right now, who was in distress. And I want to know and I want to understand why there are all these examples of police being able to escalate, all de-escalate all across the country. But right here in our community, we have black men being executed who have committed no crimes and who have been in distress and needed the help of those who are here to protect and to serve our community. So I'm here to stand with all of you because when someone dies in our community when someone is killed murdered and executed by the state by the police we have a problem with that mm -hmm. and whether COVID-19 or no COVID-19 we're going to come together and stand up and protest and say that this is wrong so as everyone has said the fight does not stop here the state has a responsibility as well We've had too many legislative sessions go by where we have not had significant reforms to our police. We need to ensure that the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights in particular is dismantled because our police officers have more rights than we do. And power concedes nothing without a demand. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak. My condolences again to the family.
Well, that was the voice of Maryland State Delegate Janelle Wilkins speaking at a rally demanding justice for Finan Hale Burhe, shot to death by Montgomery County Police Sergeant David Cohen on May 7th. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. We who believe in justice cannot rest, cannot rest. We who believe in justice cannot rest until it comes. One more time. We who believe in justice cannot rest, cannot rest. We who believe in justice cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men, black Mother's sons is as important as the killing of white men. White mother's sons. We who believe in justice cannot rest. Cannot rest. We who believe in justice cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in justice cannot rest, cannot rest. We who believe in justice cannot rest until it comes. And that which touches me most is that I had a chance to work with people. Passing on to others that which was passed Unto me, we who believe in justice cannot rest, cannot rest. We who believe in justice cannot rest until it comes. To me, young people come first, they come first. They have the courage where we fail. And if I can shed some light as they carry us through the gale, the older I get, the better I know that the secret of my going on is when the reins are in the hands of the young who dare to run against the storm. We who believe in justice cannot rest cannot rest. We who believe in justice cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in justice cannot rest, cannot rest. We who believe in justice cannot rest until it this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for this segment, I'm going to speak to Lee Camp. Lee is an American comedian, writer, activist, and host and co-creator of the hit comedy news show Redacted Tonight on RT America. He's a former headline writer for The Onion and a former staff humor writer for The Huffington Post. He has performed thousands of stand-up comedy shows throughout the U.S. and internationally. He's also the creator of other web shows, and his new book is Bullet Points and Punchlines, the most important commentary ever written on the epic American tragic comedy. Welcome to On the Ground, Lee. Thank you. 
And thank you for the lovely intro. So because you write, perform, and produce journalism, I want you to appear on our monthly Focus on Culture Media because I know just from doing this weekly show, it takes a certain amount of energy to keep our perspective straight and to not normalize the craziness out here. And I suppose comedy is the perfect medium to not normalize it, to acknowledge it, but at the same time laugh at it. So in your new book, you include your reporting on the Pentagon, for example, failing its first ever audit and the billions or trillions missing. So why don't we start with that story that most people probably still have not heard about? And then what is your process to kind of take a story like that and present it to a comedy audience? Yeah, it is. It is trillions unaccounted for. Let's let's not uh, pretend it's billions. You know, that's 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 what they spend in a, a long weekend. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the Pentagon. With a story like that, uh, speaking of keeping the the anger, I, I know I I do comedy, but it's uh, rather angry comedy. Uh, a lot of it is, and uh, keeping the anger for a story like that, I got to admit, is not too difficult. I don't have to uh, get into the mood. I don't have to uh, you know wake up and just say to myself, "What's my motivation?" Four times in a row. It's very obvious how how angry a story like that should make us. And it's gotten very little coverage that there is $21 trillion. It's actually much more than that, but the initial stories had to do with the $21 trillion of unaccounted for adjustments in the Pentagon's own books. So, you know, you reviewing their own books, their own budgets, and where the money's gone, they have these unaccounted for adjustments that is trillions upon trillions of dollars. And the Pentagon was supposed to have an audit every year starting in mid-90s, and they just kept saying, oh, we can't be ready for that, and not doing it. And then finally, a year ago, less than a year ago, they achieved their first ever audit. Over a 1,000 auditors spent a year in the Pentagon's books, and last November came forward and the Pentagon just said, we failed the audit. That was it. That was the explanation for where trillions of dollars has gone, for where trillions of taxpayer money has disappeared to. for It's enough money that it could do all of the things we want to do for our society but supposedly don't have money for, like fix our bridges or take care of public schools or you know make sure Social Security is funded forever or fix the postal services. All of that could easily be done with this money, and we're told by the Pentagon, never mind, we uh, just failed our audit and we don't know where the money is. It truly is just breathtaking, and uh, yeah, that's one of those stories where I, I, I don't, I don't need to be, I don't need to remind myself to be angry about it. Oh, I remember watching you talk about it, and there was also a story I think in the Nation. One of the kind of left media did something on it, some serious investigating, mm-hmm. and all I could think about were like all those pallets of money that, like literally, like bundles of dollar bills you know millions of dollars that went to iraq like people saw it was actually billions it's yeah. 13 13 billion dollars was on and and you know a lot of people when they talk about these types of money this these levels of money they're talking about just zeros and ones on a computer screen but this was printed out like you're saying bundles of cash on pallets that were just like saran wrapped 
and then given away to various places, you know, organizations or what have you in Iraq after we invaded. And the, the Guardian's written about this. The Nation has written about this. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is documented. Right. Uh, I've actually spoken to a soldier that was in charge of guarding some of this money and had, you know, of course, he's not told why there's pallets of cash uh, arriving in Iraq. But they disappeared. $13 billion just vanishes. Right. And so... We've been covering canceled events, protests, you know, the people's bailout, the people's strike, you know, people don't have enough with what everybody is confronted with right now. And you think about that money, it's like I can understand why it can lend itself to comedy, because how else can you even deal with it? I mean, how, how else can you if we're if we're sane people, right? You know, of course, you know, we get angry and, you know, fight these powers that are, you know, doing these outrageous things with our tax money. But it's like the comedy I know has provided me some kind of relief. Anyway, that, well, well, thank you. In yeah. terms of how else you can deal with it, um, I recommend hard drugs to people <laughs> is one way. Um, you know, some other forms of addiction like gambling and uh, prostitution. I think those are good ways to deal with it. Those are real healthy ways to deal with it. Well, I, unfortunately, I think that that's, that is actually a, a large portion of our society is dealing with it in that way. But it's not necessarily hard drugs. So liquor sales have like gone through the roof during the pandemic. <laughs> Did you know that? And um, uh, yeah, well, they're essential service, right? Right. There's an essential service here in DC, and I tell you, the liquor store I go to, they were complaining months ago because when they shut down Walter Reed Hospital up here, they lost all their customers. They lost all the, you know, the tr- right. the foot traffic, the car traffic. The, the relatives of people who would stay nearby and, like, you know, go, go, go and buy beer and wine or whatever. And now they're too busy to talk to you. They used to have time to, like, have conversation. But anyway, that's how that is. So I'm thinking about, again, the current health crisis and economic crisis. And, you know, people are going through all this hard time. But at the same time, you know, the White House and Congress cannot guarantee income, food, or shelter to people, but trillions are forked over to the corporations in these, now it's the fourth stimulus, right? And in all of this, a very small proportion has gone to actually directly to people. And at the same time, we we continue these kind of military adventures, you know, threatening Venezuela, kind of threatening China with these naval maneuvers and, you know, continuing to help the Saudis bomb Yemen. Well, I really think that what we should start calling these bailouts is robberies. And yeah. David Dayan did a great piece for American Prospect when he said this is, you know, the largest robbery America's ever seen because this is taking tr- literally trillions of dollars, giving most of it to the wealthiest people and the wealthiest organizations or companies in America, and they are just running off with it. And very little is breadcrumbs is actually going out to the actual people. And you can see 
see that it's not like this is the only way this could be done. You can see in other countries they are doing it differently. Denmark made it so that they were willing to cover companies paying their employees so that they would not fire the employees during the time when when the economy shut down. So in Denmark, their unemployment is still around 4 or 5% because they actually bailed out the employees rather than bailing out the tops of companies, bailing out their already rich. So while they have 4 or 5% unemployment, we're looking at, you know, they claim it's 15%, but really it's going to get up to 25% or something. Uh, it's just I- insane. And so it, it is the, one of the greatest robberies we've ever seen. And it's because our system, unfortunately, has been taken over by big money. It's been captured by the, the richest, most powerful people on the planet. And, you know, Trump will do these press conferences where he says, Here, here's the CEO of a big pharma company that's going to run our vaccine scenes, you know. Right. Here's another CEO of a big pharma company that's going to be in charge of treatment. And it's like, those people shouldn't be allowed in near the vaccines because they are the ones that want to exploit it for money. One of the things I realized, you know, watching your show is that you're one of the few people who on TV say what we call the F word here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we do a series called the F word on fascism. And you're one of the few people who will talk about fascism in the way that what we understand fascism to be. So those classic definitions about the state and corporations becoming indiscernible, you know, that's what you have to see. Like when you see him introducing, oh, here's this CEO who's going to run this government program. And this CEO, you know, he brings in uh, Steve Mnuchin used to be. (laughs) I mean, they've been doing that anyway. But you see it more under Trump. And you see that in combination with our continued bloated military budget, which goes to corporations anyway. I wanted to ask you about your route to becoming the journalist and comedian and writer that you are. But I realize I'm going to have to take a brief break and come right back. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm talking to comedian, writer, journalist Lee Camp. Stay with us. This is Iraq. Yeah. Cut us blowing up. Nobody showing up. Nobody owing up. Hadal Iraq. Bidai Takahirtak. Jawaz Akahirtak. This is Iraq. Look at us blowing up. Look how I'm throwing up. Prime Minister on the up. Yeah, this is Iraq. Corrupting the area. Farsi hysteria. Saying we gon' take care of ya. Nah, nah. I'ma get shot for this. Nah, nah. You might get blocked from this. Nah, nah. I'ma go train a kid. Nah, nah. Wash up the innocence. Nah, nah. Sense for blood, like yeah, yeah. I'm so bored, like yeah, yeah. Let's go blow, like yeah. Braka. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. 
I'm Esther Averam, and I'm talking to comedian, writer, journalist, Lee Camp. And Lee, so I wanted to pick up and ask you about this circuitous route that you've taken to have a platform, to have the platform that you do, to tell jokes that you want to tell, to speak your own truth to power. And so I think I heard you talk about once, like working in New York and how people would want to hire you if you just want to talk about observational comedy or just kind of like mm-hmm. David Letterman jokes, but they didn't want like the political jokes. Are you talking about serious things like, you know, saying the F word or talking about fascism? So talk to us a little bit about becoming Lee Camp. Yeah, I, you know, I, I did basically the dumbest thing you can do as an artist, whether it's a comedian or musician or what have you, if you want to achieve large scale success, which is uh, really focus your career on uh, very defined political views and go after Wall Street and go after our pro-war foreign policy and go after uh, the corporations that own most of the airwaves. And if you do that, that is a terrible move for a (laughs) a comedy career uh, in terms of achieving a large platform. But somehow I ended up (laughs) getting a television show, which is incredibly rare, but there are exceptions to the rule. So, uh, yeah, I spent 12 years in New York City. I toured the nation. I I was performing three shows a night often in New York City at the various little clubs there. And you know, the audiences loved my, my comedy. I never, I wasn't the type to just enjoy bombing in front of audiences. So I was, uh, you know, good at making audiences laugh. And, and I, I did what a comedian should do. But I was not really uh, valued much by, let's say, Comedy Central or the other, uh, you know, comedy uh, television channels that will show comedians. I had some small spots here and there, but not much. And they would never really say it to you, but it seemed pretty clear that it was that they don't want somebody who's kind of a lesser known comedian doing very uh, strongly worded political analysis in their comedy. They want, yeah, there can be some politics, but it's usually kind of a weak little George Bush joke or a Donald, nowadays a Donald Trump joke. It wasn't like, you know, let's talk about how corporations have uh, taken over our, uh, you know, economic system or something like that. So they don't really want to get to the root of it. And so I had just kind of accepted that, you know, I will enjoy my stand-up comedy touring career, and that's what I love doing, but I had kind of accepted that television airwaves, because they're owned by massive corporations, were not the place for me. And, you know, luckily I ended up with this TV show redacted tonight on uh, RT America, but, you know, it's one of the very few places where people can go after the corporations that rule our day-to-day in a strongly worded and regular uh, pattern. And that's why you see people like Chris Edges and Jesse Ventura and so many others uh, have ended up at, at RT America. But yeah, it, it, it was a bit of a circuitous route, but the show has been going for six years now and people seem to really love it. And by the way, for anybody who doesn't get it on their cable TV, it's also on YouTube. It's called Redacted Tonight. So at some point, this must be several years ago now, I was just thinking about Jon Stewart and how he had his whole time in the sun where he was considered a kind of a political comedian. But within that, I noticed that there were definitely some red lines, right? He didn't go outside certain boundaries. Even though it was 
critical of maybe, I think at that time, maybe Bush. And it wasn't hard to be critical of someone who had us in a war where we were losing soldiers and being revealed to have committed war crimes. I mean, in a way, it wasn't hard to do that, right? Right, right? But I remember when he did his march or whatever it was here in the rally for sanity yeah rally and um i think at that point i was still contributing to huffington post like it was just kind of a thing where that was before like you know i she got she took all this money and i was like well wait a minute i've been contributing free to this thing and now she took well, anyway that's something else but um <laughs> no I, yeah i remember that yeah because I, 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 I was a hired for a while they had actually paid comedy staff at Huffington Post, and I did that for about a year. And then they realized that they could get as many clicks by just reposting comedy material from other websites, and they wouldn't have to pay anyone. So they stopped paying everyone and just told us, hey, you can keep writing for free, though. Right. So during that time, this is when this rally, rally occurred, and it was such a turnoff because around that same time, he, he was like dog. He had dogged Medea Benjamin. He had said some snide remark about her and something somebody else and i was just like okay so this dude's not really serious you know and i just thought it was kind of like this really like he had this luxury as as a white boy to be kind of sarcastic and i forgot what the word was but cynical yes yeah he had this this um luxury of being that way whereas but we were really dealing with some really serious things on the ground Mm -hmm. that he didn't have to deal with yeah, I mean, he's an interesting story, I, and I don't, let me say up top, I don't know the guy, I've never met him, uh, I think he is a, a very talented and always has been a very talented comedian, but in terms of kind of making political points, when he first got to Comedy Central, he had to fight to make The Daily Show actually discuss things of substance like before he got the daily show had existed before he got there and they were you know they would do five minute pieces on how somebody out on a farm did a book about a a chicken like they would do kind of random nothing stories and he had to fight to actually have stories that kind of mattered so in that regard and many people quit because of it so in that regard i give him a lot of credit he, he did that fight he took that fight up and he made he made daily show have to deal with uh some very important issues but i don't i think beyond that you're right that there does feel like there's a red line. You know, don't go after corporations on a regular basis. Uh, don't go after the the unfettered capitalism we have in this country. Don't go after the the fact that our politicians seem uh, to agree, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, on 80 percent of the structural issues of this country. And some of that may just be his genuine beliefs. But something I found interesting was there was a book about The Daily Show right, uh, soon after he stopped uh, hosting it. And it was just a couple of paragraphs, but it really kind of solidified everything in my mind. They talked about how they had sponsors, and anytime they wanted to make fun of one of the sponsors, so these corporations, it was someone's job, there was an ad exec or something, to call up that sponsor, you know, call up, let's say, Walmart, and try and convince the person on the phone that being made fun of on The Daily Show was cool and hip, and so it was okay, and they should allow it. Now, that's kind of where they leave it in the book, but to me, that says, wow, if you want to say something negative about Walmart and they don't okay it, 
you can't do it, which is, you know, if you're taking all of the corporations or most of the largest ones off the table as, uh, you know, in terms of criticism, then you are basically saying no to criticizing one of the most powerful influences in all of our lives. That is uh, destroying our government, destroying our public entities. Like, to me, to shut that down, to say, you know, we can't really comment on this, or if you wanted to, we have to convince them it's fun, uh, is, to me, it's just laughable that you could have any kind of genuine news show that really got at the heart of it. And this goes for all the others, you know, CNN and everything else. Yeah. Similarly, I I know that you probably take a lot of heat from people who want to basically attack the fact that you are on RT, which used to be stand for like Russia Today, especially in this most recent period that we're still in of kind of Russia phobia and where Russia was such the target like since 2016 when Hillary Clinton lost the election instead of taking full responsibility for her own loss she blamed Russia and so we've gone through this whole period now where like anything dealing with Russia is just like being like associated with the devil you know in this country so RT is the one place where voices like yours, like you mentioned, Chris Hedges, Jesse Ventura, other people have found an outlet. I mean, it's not perfect. You know, there's a lot of stuff on RT that is not necessarily progressive, right? (laughs) In my my mind, but it's a place where many progressive voices are. And even to the point where it's so funny because during this whole Russia phobia period, even... Uh, even when they were able to link the the fact that Jill Stein went to Russia uh, RT's anniversary, mm-hmm. they used that against her to say she's she's some Putin puppet and all yeah. this other stuff. And it was su- it's such a dangerous uh, era to live in to me, to, to a situation and society to live in yeah. because I never thought I would live through like kind of a new McCarthyite type period. Right. And to me, that's what it really felt like. So. Uh, the point I wanted to make about media is that they won't have you on their platform, right? So I think that you mentioned, like, you never went on The Tonight Show, right? Mm-hmm. Or Actually, I was told by the booker of Letterman back he, he was still on the air. I was told by him that, so I did a 10-minute set for him to see my material, and he said, so I had a couple of jokes that were not political. They're kind of like little silly one-liners I would put in the middle of the act. And he said, I like those silly one-liners, but you should cut out everything else. So basically cut out all the politics. Right, right. So they don't want you on their platform. But then if you find another platform, even if it's their boogeyman of the of the day, you know, they want to say, OK, see, you went over there to perform over there. So that means, you know, that, you know, we're going to further vilify you. So it's like they don't want you to be yeah. able to make a living being the kind of artist that you want to be. And really, I well, mean, that's really happened to the journalists, too. Right. Know, and let me just say that, like. One of the reasons I continue to be at RT America is because I have had complete freedom. I've never been told to say something. I've never been not told told to say anything. I'm doing the same topics and the same opinions as I was doing before I started at RT America. So it is a level of freedom that I could not have at any other uh, of these corporate networks. I mean, we've heard about the level of suppression and censorship at, say, MSNBC. 
or CNN or Fox News. I mean, you know, Melissa Harris Perry, when she was forced out, did an interview uh, on Democracy Now! where she revealed that she was even stopped from covering the Beyonce halftime show, Super Bowl halftime show, because it was the outfits were Black Panther inspired, and that was too much for MSNBC. So they banned her from discussing it. So it's like, I've never dealt with anything like that. I mean, Ed Schultz, who ended up at RT America for a while, he was at MSNBC, highly rated show, and he was forced out because he supported Bernie Sanders. Exactly, and he went to interview him, right. Right. Yeah, I went to interview him. Yeah, and he was forced out. And so it's like the level of censorship at these other networks is insane. But then they point to me, who's not being censored, and they say, oh, you're, you know, a, a stooge or a puppet or something. But, you know, and I don't speak for other shows. There are news shows at RT that have nothing to do with me. And, and I do my own show. I write all my own stuff. I research all my own stuff. And my opinion when I first started Redacted Tonight was basically like, we don't have a lot of time left. We've got 10 years till the point of no return with climate change. We've lost 50% of all wildlife over the past, uh, larger wildlife over the past 40 years. Uh, endangered species are going extinct every day. And it really feels like the environment's collapsing down around us. And what am I going to sit around and wait for corporate America to decide it's okay to criticize them? No, I don't. I don't work like that. I've never worked like that. And so, in my opinion, this you know what the stuff I'm talking about, whether it's my show or someone else's, desperately needs to be heard. And I'm willing to yell it out of any uh, you know bullhorn I can get my uh, hands on. Right. Well, I guess we feel the same way on that. Um, I, I I really appreciate the the. Uh, audio they play of Chris Hedges about um, you know squeaking against against the avalanche, but squeak we must. Yeah. So you know, yeah. however humble it may be, it is very important. And that's actually why I went into journalism. I didn't really go into journalism. I guess some of my classmates did. They wanted to be an anchor. You know, they wanted right. to like have like outfits sent to them from Bergdorf Goodman or something <laughs> that they could like wear and have the have a half hour of makeup and and that was their right. idea of journalism and being a germ but that never really was mine so you know it's um uh you know until the wheels come off that's that's what has to happen so maybe I should end with you know what you're thinking about now what are you thinking about right now that's funny <laughs> that's funny oh man that's a tough one well yeah you know, I did just put out this new book and I try and mix the the comedy with the politics because I feel like you need the uh, the applesauce to help the medicine go down it, uh, you know I, I don't want people reading my book even though it uh, reveals some really harsh realities I don't want people reading it and then deciding they need to uh, you know drive their car into a bridge embutment so uh, <laughs> I, I definitely throw some humor in there uh, you know the the for example, one of the things I say is I, I, when I, in that chapter about the $21 trillion that's unaccounted for at the Pentagon is when they were asked why they failed their audit, the defense secretary at the time said, well, it's financial discrepancies. And my response to that is, no, I'm sorry, you can't have $21 trillion of financial discrepancies. You could have a couple of dollars, but not $21 trillion. That would be like me saying that I had sex with 100,000 hairless aardvarks because I wasn't looking where I was walking. No, I'm sorry. You, a couple, maybe. But beyond that, it's a choice. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I wonder what that would look like. 
But anyway. <laughs> but um, I do want to remind uh, people about your book, Bullet Points and Punchlines, the most important commentary ever written on the epic American tragic comedy. And on that note, uh, thank you for joining me today, Lee. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. Our page has a picket sign with green letters that say on the ground and we have a new podcast on apple android and more platforms the name is on the ground with esther Everum, just a w for with and so that's on the ground w esther Everum, and that also has that picket sign with green lettering that says on the ground special thanks to gerald horn Chantel james thomas o'rourke and lee camp for participating on today's show the music we played this hour included Anthony B. Police, Lucy Murphy singing We Who Believe in Freedom at the rally for Fanon Berhe, May 24, 2020 in Silver Spring, Maryland, and INZ, This Is Iraq. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice and fight the power.